Let me, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, which is where we are in our study of the book of Acts. But I want to direct your attention to the screen because I'm going to use a different translation, one that I have on occasion referred to before. It's not a common one. It's called the RCV, and this is from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the nightly news update and to their personal interests and to hobbies and to ACC sports, Southern living, and to social media. Everyone was bored to tears, and nothing that wasn't ever in the five-year plan was ever done by the pastoral staff. All the believers were isolated and considered their stuff as their own. If someone had a need, they sent them to the government-run social service programs and then complained about their high taxes. Once a week tops, they met together in the sanctuary. They never set foot in each other's homes. And when they were together, it was marked by surface conversations about sports and the weather and facades to cover up anything, any real problems they might be experiencing. They went through the motions of worship on Sunday, and they were considered hypocrites by all the people because they did whatever they pleased during the week. And mercifully, the Lord spared most folks from being added to their number. Um, and that is from the reality check version of the New Testament Look with me, though, again at verse 42 from this, uh, this thing. They devoted themselves to the nightly news update and to their personal interests and hobbies and to ACC sports, Southern Living, and, and to social media. It raises the question, what are you devoted to? Seriously, what, what are you devoted to? I ran across a blog this week. Uh, the blogger writes, he says, I was married at the time to a school teacher who dealt daily with fifth graders who had been pigeonholed and categorized with a variety of acronym-type terms, ADD, ADHD, OCD, TSTT. She said, the percentage of students put into each of these categories was high. I don't doubt it would be over half of her classes. And one day, my teacher wife told me, I have OHD. I asked her what that was, and she said, obsessive hobby disorder, um, a diagnosis just for her husband, it appears. OHD, he writes, is an absolute obsession with the hobby of the moment. He says, I've gone through many hobbies over the years. One hobby, as mentioned in my other blog post, was Goliath bird-eating spiders. Okay. Once I became interested in spiders, it quickly became an obsession. I went to the library and checked out over 20 books on tarantula spiders. I didn't read every word of every book, but I did skim through them and read chapters or various paragraphs that caught my attention. I also spent hours each night surfing the internet, reading on the topic, and looking at photos of various types of tarantulas. I found the local spider group, the Southern Nevada Herpetological Society. I tracked down a spider breeder in a nearby city who raised and sold spiders to local pet shops. For about three months, almost any conversation I had would revert to the discussion of tarantulas after about 20 minutes. I took a similar approach with chess, rockets, website design, watches, lizards, mid-century modern architecture, and various other topics. Each of these became an obsession for months at a time, eclipsing all other interests in my life. Okay. Now, it, it starts interesting. Uh, you know, innocently enough. It sounds innocent enough, except for, except for when he gets to the part about turning every conversation to Goliath bird-eating spiders. That would be a problem, right? Or that last phrase, 
each of these became an obsession for months at a time, eclipsing all other interests of my life. What are you devoted to that has a tendency to eclipse other, all other interests of your life? There's a legend that in ancient days, the king of Siam, now Thailand, um, when they had courtiers in their court who would, for various reasons, become obnoxious to them or even adversarial to them, the king would give to them a unique gift, a white elephant as a gift. Um, it's actually a live albino elephant. These animals were considered sacred in the culture of the day. So the recipient of that elephant had no choice but to intentionally care, with meticulous care, for that white elephant gift. The elephant would take an inordinate amount of the courtier's time, resources, energy, emotions, and finances, and the intent was to ruin the bothersome courtier or the adversary by the cost of caring for the gift. Okay. Gordon MacDonald helps us see the relevance of this. He says, our spiritual enemy uses the same strategy on us. He says, let's say you buy season tickets to your favorite sports team, but because you still have a lot of games to go to, you no longer have time to serve in some area of ministry. Or let's say you buy a summer cottage, but now you missed most weekend worship services between the beginning of May and the end of September. Or let's say you buy a health club membership to get in shape, and you used to get up early in the morning to read your Bible and pray, but now you don't have time because you're working out before you go to work. Or let's say you buy a spot for one of your kids on a traveling sports team, and now you're too busy to join in a community impact ministry as they serve the poor. He says, are there white elephants in your life? Are you spending money on things that take your time away from God? He says, the money isn't the problem. The activities aren't necessarily the problem. The problem is a white elephant gift that has pulled you away from God-honoring pursuits. What hobbies do you have? Or perhaps, perhaps I could phrase it differently. What hobbies have you? What are you devoted to? What devotions are you feeding? Are they the right ones? As we look at the book of Acts this morning, we're going to look at another one of those snapshots of the church. And this snapshot is about what, what the early church, the, the newborn church, was devoted to. Um, and so if you really will look at your Bibles in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42 to 47, 3,000 people have just been added to this little band of believers. And this is what they were preoccupied with. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. <clears throat> and day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray for a minute. Right? Father, have mercy on us.
this morning. By your spirit and your word, expose for us um, devotions that have grown too large, that have usurped the devotions that are supposed to mark us as the people of God. So in your kindness this morning, Father, make this for each of us personal. Give us ears to hear now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Verse 42 of what I just read shares four things that this early gathering of believers were devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, Then in the verses that follow, verses 43 to 47, um, there are about ten different ways that these devotions spill out in their lives. Um, and this morning, in the hopes of not having a sermon with 14 points, um, we're just going to focus on these first four, these four things that it says they were devoted to, and we'll, we'll spill over or watch how they spill over a little bit in some of those other things. But first, let me, let me just help you get on the same page with me about what it means to be devoted to something. It has the idea of something that you persevere in, that you're, something that you're not easily knocked out of the saddle with regards to. And if, if you do fall off, you get back on quickly. That's devoted. You persevere in it. And almost all of our English translations render this idea as devoted, which implies that we care about this. We have, we have desires for these things. They matter to us. So when we think about what we're devoted to, we are thinking about what we care about so much that we persevere in it no matter what. Now for some, that means studying Goliath bird-eating spiders. For others, it's their kids' sporting events. You hear them every once in a while. Never miss a practice. Never even miss a practice. But for the early church, it was these four things. The apostles' teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And that's the challenge for us this morning. Are these devotions held up for us as examples? Are they our devotions? Could we say yes to these things? So let's walk through those four together. The first of which is um, they devoted themselves to, to the apostles' teaching. So thousands of new believers, right, on on Pentecost, 3,000 people became believers in Jesus, and they are hanging on the teaching of the apostles, Um, witnesses of Jesus' life and ministry of his death and resurrection. Their teaching likely focused on Jesus, how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and so we have that teaching now for us. When we talk about the teaching of the apostles, it's the Bible, okay? That's what it is for us. We believe it to be the words of God. And so when we talk about being devoted to the apostles' teaching for you and me, we're talking about being devoted to the word. And there's no better description of that than Psalm 119 uh, in the Old Testament. It's full of verses like this. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. 
I will not forget your word. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I I love. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Could you say those things? Could you honestly say those kinds of things about the apostles' teachings, about about the Bible you hold in your lap this morning? And if you said it, would your spouse believe you? If you said, honey, this book, it's better than a thousand gold pieces to me. Would she like put her hand on your forehead and say, who are you? Are you okay? Or would she believe it? Would he believe it? What does it mean to be devoted to the Word? Um, You think of things like you would read it daily. You would meditate on it recurringly. You would consult it regularly. You would seize opportunities to learn more about it. Would your life change uh, fellowship attendance belie a devotion to the Word? Would your morning schedule as you start your day, would that belie a a devotion to the Word? Are you easily deterred from the time you set aside to read the teaching of the prophets and the apostles? Is this a devotion you are actively feeding, nurturing, growing? Let me make just a couple practical suggestions about how you can feed and grow a devotion to the Word. Personally, it's really helpful to have some kind of plan. Random Bible reading, randomly put into your calendar, rarely produces a devotion to the Word. So... There's a million Bible reading plans out there. You can read the Bible in a year. You can read it in three years. You can read it in five years. You can pick any book of the Bible and read it from start to finish. Some kind of plan helps. And some kind of place in the rhythm of your day helps. Um, Do you have a plan? Now, if you have a plan, know that you are not going to keep your plan. Perfectly, okay? You are going to mess up. You are going to stay up too late. You are going to sleep in. You are going to set aside an hour. You're going to have five minutes, okay? Seize what you get, okay? Sometimes people think, well, I don't have an hour in the morning. I can't do this. I, that's a, today's a waste. Just forget it. If you got five minutes, take five minutes, okay? Seize what you get, Give yourself grace. If you miss a day, get back on the horse the next day. Okay? Perfection is not prerequisite here. Devotion is what we're after. Growing devotion. So take what you can get. Seize what you have. Give yourself some grace. And give it your best time. Okay? If you're a morning person, start your day that way. If you are at your best late at night... Carve out some time late at night 
to open up the Bible and read it when you're sharpest, when you're at your best. Um, I would say, give your best Give your best here as well. You know, one of the steady intakes of the Word for, for those of you who are regular North Wakers is our, is our Sunday morning messages, our sermons. Um, and you, I hope you know that I am committed to giving you my best work. Okay? Um, I need you to be committed to giving me your best work. So that you come in here well rested. You didn't stay up till 2 in the morning surfing the net. So that you got up at 8.45 and threw clothes on and came here. Hoping that there was coffee in the lobby. Right? Be attentive. Get up early enough to pray and read through the med for prep that Daniel Creswell prepares to prepare us for worship every week. Get up early enough to do that. Go to bed early enough to do that. Come with the expectation that you are about to hear from God. Come prepared to take notes if that helps you. I actually had somebody come up, one of the guys come up to me, showing me a couple weeks ago. He has now, courtesy of his wife, a journal, a man journal, with Clint Eastwood's picture, duct tape to the front. Um. If taking notes keeps you engaged, you know, if, if you went somewhere and you had the expectation that God was going to speak to you, would it be reasonable to write it down? If you don't come to church hoping, expecting to hear from God, you have robbed yourself of one of the major motivations to bother to come here. And it does happen. It's not, it's not uncommon for people to approach me after the service and say, were you talking to me? Okay. They're a little bit offended that I would single them out. So I actually had a lady call me and say, have you been talking to someone about me? She was dead serious. And I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. But God does. And because he's a kind God and a gracious God, he shares his grace with those who will not rob him of his glory. Okay? And he brings it to us in, in messages like this. If you're in a flat spot in your personal Bible reading, hey, get some help. Find somebody that you know reads the Bible and it lights their passion for God and just... Go out to coffee with them and say, give me some tips. Okay? I'm, I'm in a flat spot. Could use a little help. Admittedly, the Bible is not an easy book to read. Okay? It's ancient history. It's not easy. Find somebody that it's working for, and for the price of a cup of coffee, get some tips. Okay? Find out what makes it meaningful for them, what makes it joy for them, what makes it worship for them. Are you feeding your devotion to the Word. They were. They were, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They hung on it. They lived for it. Um, second of those four devotions, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, and the fellowship. Um, 
the language here has the idea of, of a sharing in common. Not just of things, but of, of life, really. Um, and you get a sense for what this devotion to the fellowship looks like in some of those other verses we read. Verses 44 to 46 say, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. See, they were together a lot, right? They were, they were in the temple every day, and they were in each other's homes. They, they hung out, okay? It's part of the way they expressed their devotion to the fellowship. They hung out. They had people in their homes. Do you ever hang out with people in this room? Okay? It's your church family. You ever hang out with them? If you don't, you are not feeding your devotion to the fellowship. You're starving it. Okay? You cannot be devoted to the people in this room if you do not hang out with them. If you do not spend time with them. But it, go, it goes beyond, as, as you can tell in reading these verses, it goes beyond just hanging out. They, they cared so deeply for one another that if one person had a need, somebody else would sell something in order to be able to meet that need. And some read this, and it starts to make them nervous, and they say, sounds like communism to me. Okay. This is not communism. This is, this is just church. Honestly, this is the way church is supposed to work. That we would care so deeply for one another, we would be devoted enough to one another to sell our stuff to meet each other's needs. Um, I'm curious, how many of you have had some kind of need met by someone in the church, a physical need, like uh, maybe somebody brought you a meal, or somebody watched your kids, or somebody gifted you some furniture, or maybe some cash came your way in a time of need. If you've ever had that experience in this fellowship, would you just raise your hand high? All right. See, that's, that's beautiful. That's the way it's supposed to be. I should be raising both hands, okay? I'm like the poster boy for this. Somebody gave me my refrigerator, okay, and my dryer, and my stove, okay? I bought the microwave on clearance, I've been given a car. Somebody gave me a car once. Um, somebody gave one of my kids a car once. Um, when I was on sabbatical three or four years ago, some guys came over and about tripled the size of my deck. Okay? I came home and to this amazing deck. Um, Y'all should come over. We can hang out on my deck. It's, it's really amazing. And uh, I, I can hardly wait for my next sabbatical. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking hot tub, you know? I don't know. Um, hey, but, but if that's not your experience of the church, if you're not on both ends of that, okay? If you're on the edge of this thing, and, and what's happening right now in this room is the only time you see these amazing people sitting in here, and, 
And the only interaction you have is what happens when you walk in and out of this room. Hey, don't settle for that. Okay? That's really not church. It's not what we're built for. Okay? I just say, come on in. Come on in. Let us know you. Let us love you. Get to know us. Love us. To the point where we care for you so deeply that we'll sell our stuff for you. And vice versa. Amazing, amazing verse, really confusing verse, but I think it's about us, okay, that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 10. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. How does that work? I think, I think it's Jesus is envisioning the church. That though some of you have been ostracized by family as for your devotion to Jesus, you know, you got a new family, big family. Okay? Half of it's in this room right now. People with the same level of devotion and care for one another. Don't settle for one hour a week. Feed your devotion to the fellowship, to sharing life with other followers of Jesus. There's a fascinating study, kind of informal study that was done by Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton. They're researchers who wrote a book called Happy Money. And they, they did this little experiment. They handed out Starbucks gift cards on a university campus. And they told some of the people to head to Starbucks and buy something for themselves, right? They told others to pass their gift card along to someone else. And they told a third group of people to use the gift card to buy something for someone else, but the requirement was that they actually had to hang out with that person at Starbucks. And, and, and their, their conclusion, who was the happiest? Those who treated someone else and shared in that experience with them. He says, so the cost of increasing your happiness might be as cheap as two cups of coffee. See, we are built for this. We are built for a sacrificial, loving community. It's where your greatest joy lies. Not on the edges. Not on the fringes. Not in selfishness. Are you devoted to the fellowship? Are you feeding this devotion? Hanging out with believers, sharing with those in this family who are in need. And this, this kind of points us towards uh, the third devotion. But some, some um, scholars believe that there really aren't four devotions here. There's only two. There's the word, the apostles' teaching, and there's the fellowship. And the last two are actually a subset of the second one. That the breaking of bread and prayer are marks of the fellowship. And be that as it may, um, this third one is closely connected. I'm going to closely connect it with that second one uh, this morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, it's not entirely clear whether breaking of bread means the Lord's Supper, which we will share in at the end of this service, or it's just a common meal. Um, because if you look down at verse 46, it says, Day by day, 
They attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And it's evident there that it's talking about a shared meal. Now, it's hard to tell them, it's hard to sort it out here because oftentimes that shared meal also involved the Lord's Supper. That they would, if you read, if you read 1 Corinthians, for instance, they would have a meal together. And the Lord's Supper was part of that meal. Um, but I'm going to lean us today towards that shared meal emphasis because we have the privilege of sharing in the Lord's Supper at, at the end as just a tangible practice of that. So uh, in their culture, to share a meal with someone, it was called table fellowship. Big deal. Okay? If you had a meal, you shared a meal with somebody, um, they were accepted by you. It, was, it signals acceptance in a big way. This is why Jesus kept getting in trouble because he kept having meals with the wrong kinds of people, remember? He, would, he was accused of going out, going out and having meals with sinners, with uh, gluttons and drunkards. And, and by that meal, Jesus was signifying that he accepted them. And this upset the religious leaders' uh, thinking. I'm not sure that, though, it's, it's that different in our culture. When you have someone over for a meal in your home, that, honestly, that still matters. You have somebody over for dinner, that's a sign of friendship. That, that's a sign of relationship and acceptance, isn't it? Right? It's a different thing going to Moe's together. Not that going to Moe's is a bad thing. So, are you devoted to the breaking of bread with people in this room, your church family, this, if this is your church home? When was the last time you had another North Wake family in your home around your dinner table for a shared meal? See, the default in our culture is to circle the wagons and for me to just be about me and my family to be so busy with me and my family that my schedule will not allow me to have anybody else in my home. So, hey, let me just warn you. Beware a family-exclusive table that excludes everyone else. You, you are not modeling for your kids this great devotion of the church to the fellowship and to the breaking Breaking of bread. Is there room at your table for your brothers and sisters in this room? Is there room in your calendar for your brothers and sisters who are in this room? It raises another question, really important question. Are there people in this room that you would intentionally exclude from your table? Is there, is there someone that you've had a falling out with? Maybe somebody that you feel mistreated you that you will not have in your home, that you will not share a meal with. See, part of devotion to the table, whether the Lord's table or your dining room table, implies that we must forgive. That we must forgive and be reconciled. That this that this loving one another is the mark of a Christian. 
We must forgive. It's my responsibility to all I can to mend the relationship, to invite over and over and over if need be. Would you exclude someone from your table because of their race? When was the last time you had somebody over who wasn't your race? Ed Galbraith tells the story of an African-American pastor who recounts that he, when he was, he was his third year as a pastor in this particular ministry, he gets a call from a prominent white Christian leader asking me to go to lunch with him, he says. As we're sitting down to eat, all of a sudden, this guy, he says, starts crying. And he explained that God had blessed him. His children were healthy. He was known throughout the country. But he said, I've had a hard time sleeping throughout the night. And I was thinking to myself, why is he telling me this? I'm, I'm not a therapist, right? He says, I just came back from an annual conference on the other side of the country. And a bunch of us got together to discuss reconciliation and cross-cultural ministry. And usually, when black leaders come into the meeting, we make them feel right at home. and let them be part of the decision-making process. He says, but to be honest with you. The decisions are made before your leaders ever get there. I'm used to hearing the jokes and the use of the N-word, but this time, he said, when the jokes were going on and people were saying things, it didn't sound right to me. And he said, how can I get over this? The leader asked him, he was sobbing now, how can we be friends? So this this African-American pastor, he says, I was silent for a moment, and then I asked him, do you like football? He seemed a little puzzled, and he said, yes. He said, I do too. I used to coach high school and college ball, and I have a lot of friends who play pro. I love a good game, and I love to cook out, so here's what we do. I need to get to know you, and you need to get to know me. Why don't you come over to my house? He says, I was the only black in my suburban neighborhood at the time. I said, bring your wife. Meet my wife. We'll just sit and talk and get to know each other. I'll barbecue some steaks, and we'll start there. He says this white leader was a little taken aback, and he said, you want me to come to your house? Yes. He said, if you want me to sit here and clear your conscience for all the crap you did, I can't do that. (laughs) Friendship is not cheap. It takes time and commitment. I gave him my home phone number and told him to give me a call, and then he says, I never heard from him again. See? The church is to be so devoted to the breaking of bread together, so devoted to a love for one another, that we forgive wrongs. And we invite over those who have wronged us. We overlook barriers. We transcend prejudices. See, feed. you got to feed this devotion. you got to work it out around your table in your dining room so that we can live it out together at this table, at the Lord's table. Lastly, fourth, fourth thing that it says they were devoted to, um, it says... Uh, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. It actually says the prayers. Um, 
So it may be that they had set prayers that they pray, like the Lord's Prayer that Jesus had taught them, other prayers from their culture as, uh, as Jews. Um, perhaps that means prayers at set times. The Jews did have a practice, as I understand it, of uh, gathering for prayer three times a day, nine in the morning, the third hour, and then again at noon, the sixth hour, and then again at 3 p.m., the, the ninth hour, they would regularly gather three times a day for, for prayer like that. And many Christians have adapted this. Some congregations have adapted this. But many individual Christians have adapted this to morning, noon, and evening prayers. And I, and I cannot commend this to you enough that you bracket your day with communion with God. That you start your day with God and you end your day with God. That you have some time for prayer in the morning where you commit your day to him and then you have some time at the end of the day to confess your sins because you took charge of your day and took it back and you give thanks to God for the mercies that he's given you all day long. They've been everywhere. Now, the other thing that I've been um, struggling to implement myself, and I think it has real value for us, is midday prayer. Okay? Where, like, for instance, right after lunch, or maybe some of you during lunch, you get off the treadmill long enough to say a few short prayers, maybe read a little bit of Scripture, and reorient yourselves towards God. Because okay? probably by noon, if you're like me, you've gotten off track already, and you need to be reoriented. Now, this is the sixth hour. In Latin, it's called, that's sext. Okay? So I am all about sexting. It's good for your soul. Okay? The sixth hour of the day, you, you'll never forget that from now on. Uh, but the sixth hour of the day, take a little break and sext. Okay? Pray to God. Now, there's a context to this. And you need to honor my context, please. That's what's giving these words meaning. The Latin is the sixth hour. Um, but in the middle of the day, step out of your routine. Get off the treadmill just for a couple of minutes. Close your office door. Step back away from whatever you're doing and pray to God. If you have the opportunity to read a, a scripture or two and reorient Stoke your devotion to the prayers. Now, likely, corporate prayer is in view here. And as we've already seen, this is one of the consistent marks of the early church in Acts. We've had two snapshots of the church so far, right? In chapter 1, the early believers gathered, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Here in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Take a snapshot of the church gathered in, in the book of Acts. They were probably praying. And, and we have, next Sunday night, uh, our monthly prayer gathering. Okay? You should feed your devotion to the prayers by coming. Okay? We only do it once a month formally. It happens in small groups all the time. But we do it collectively as a church family once a month. You should come. Michael Green is, a, is an Oxford scholar who says that, that, that this gathering is one of the main ways in which Western Christianity is distinguished from African, Asian, and Latin American expressions of faith. We in the West rely on technology, on books, videos, organization, in a word, on making things happen. People in the two-thirds world are often deprived of these things, he says, which is a good thing because it makes them rely on God to make things happen. Thus you find the level of faith, the commitment to prayer, and the practice of fasting infinitely more developed in these continents than in our own. 
it's no surprise, he says, that the gospel is spreading much faster and deeper there than it is in the West because God loves to answer prayer. A.C. Dixon said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. A fellow named Armin Gesswine said, if you want to see how popular the church is, attend Sunday morning worship. If you want to see how popular the pastor is, attend Sunday evening. Now, we don't have a Sunday evening service. I'm not sure what that means. Um, but he says, if you want to see how popular God is, attend the prayer meeting. Okay? Are you devoted to the prayers? Do you persevere in prayer even when it is inconvenient? Um, are you feeding this devotion? Let me encourage you, there are many ways to do this, but come next Sunday night, let's feed it together. Let's feed the devotion to pray. Let's learn how to pray together as a church family. Now, it's been pointed out that, curiously, these four devotions don't include anything about missions or evangelism or outreach of any kind. It's not in there. And a lot of, uh, a lot of suggestions have been put forward to try to explain that and one is just, hey, it's just a single snapshot. It's not exhaustive in terms of everything that the church should be and do, and that's true. But the other thing, if you notice, if you read those other verses that follow of the ten or so things that spill out of those devotions, three of them are very much outward-focused things. Verse 43 says, Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And uh, many believe that that's not just the band of believers, that that's, a whole, that's the city, that there was awe amongst every soul, literally. You drop down to verse 47, that he finds that they were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people, the people outside of their fellowship. They were having favor with them. And that wouldn't surprise us because of what it says next. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were together in public places, right, in the temple, every day meeting, inevitably talking to people about their new faith as the people wondered why they were gathered there. And the Lord was adding to their number every day. Um, they found favor those, with those they came in contact with because, I mean, just think about it, the prostitutes weren't working anymore. The liars weren't lying anymore. The thieves weren't stealing anymore. The people who were angry and bitter, they weren't holding grudges anymore. And they found favor because of the way Christ had changed their life. And God added to their number daily. See, mission flows most naturally and powerfully and gladly from these kinds of devotions to the Word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. These devotions are intended to fuel outreach. Undevoted disciples make lousy witnesses. Okay. Devoted disciples, we see here, make powerful witnesses because of the transformation of their lives. So, what are you personally devoted to? 
Which of these four devotions ought to be your personal priority to feed? Let's pray together.